How's everybody doing? All right. I see that video four times a week, and it's still just as epic the fourth time uh, on the weekend. It's a good video. <sighs> Glad you guys are here. Um, we are in the book of Revelation. If you've never been to the church before, we go through whole books of the Bible, and um, it's just the way I prefer to do it. It kind of keeps me from inserting too much of myself in there, and I think it's just good for us to dig into the Word. Now, the book of Revelation is unique, unique to um, essentially the, the, the other 65 books of the Bible, and a lot of people have kind of a fear of this book. They're afraid to jump into it. They think it's uh, out of their realm of comprehension. They think it's just too much to dive into. And I don't necessarily agree with that. And so a lot of Christians have neglected this book because of those reasons. And, and so this is our third time in the last nine and a half, we'll be 10 years old here in about five or six months, but this is the only book that I will have gone through three times. And I think it's a very important book. The only book of the Bible that says you'll be blessed if you hear it and read it. And uh, every book of the Bible blesses you, but this one specifically says that in chapter one. So if you're here and you're just starting to come, it's a good time to jump in. We're still kind of in the shallow end of the pool of Revelation. We're only in the first couple of chapters. Believe me, it gets much more dense and deeper as we go, uh, but I can also tell you we're going to be fine. We'll get through it just fine. So anyways, if you weren't here last week, we did chapter one. Now in chapter one, John, the author of Revelation, is on an island. He's been exiled from the Roman government. He is worshiping by himself, and he kinds, it says he comes under the Spirit of the Lord, and he receives this vision. So in this vision, he sees these lampstands, he sees these, uh, uh, these stars, and they are held by God himself. He turns around as he hears this voice, and in chapter 1, John describes the face of God, talks about seeing God, and at the end of chapter 1, God asks John to write seven letters to seven churches that were in Western Turkey called Asia Minor, okay? And that's where we're going to pick up today. Now, last week, we talked about chapter one kind of establishes who we're getting this revelation from. We're getting it from God. And it goes into to detail about how, and it's a metaphorical kind of description of God, but how powerful he is and how he sees everything and knows everything and has all power and all knowledge. This week, we're going to talk about the responsibility of the church, and we're going to get into these seven letters. We're going to do four of the, of the seven today, and we'll do the other three next week. And in this, what we're going to see is we're going to see that people haven't changed too much over the last 2,000 years. Though these letters were written to people that were, you know, 2,000 years ago, these, these specific churches, the things that we're going to read today still apply to us. So again, I don't know if you know this or not, but we think that like, you know, everyone's just worse than they were 2,000 years ago. They struggled with the same kind of things we did. We just have sometimes a little bit more of an opportunity to fall into our struggles, you know? Like back then, people still lusted. Now we just have this thing that we hold in our hand that you can look at anything you want, right, and satisfy that lust. So we've always had lust issues, how we've dealt with it and our accessibility to those things. We've always had greed and materialism and all those things, but now we just have a little bit more access to it. So we're going to see that these churches that were written to 1950 years ago all these things still apply to us today. Not only that, we're going to see that if we persevere, I'm talking about us, right, in this room, if we can push through and if we can stick with God till the end, whether that be the end of our lifetime or Jesus coming back, we receive a very, very unique reward. And we'll talk about that at the end, okay? So, you should have got a notes handout when you came in. Has everything that's going to be on the screens is in the handout. And I hope you keep those. Hold on to those. Very, very handy to have. So when you guys are sitting around at dinner parties and people are just like, oh, what's your eschatology? You can like pull out your notes. That's probably not going to happen, right? But anyways, you'll have a good working knowledge of the end times if you keep all these notes, just in case. The other thing is, if you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app has all the notes on it, and it also has the scripture too. If you have a Bible, we're in the very last book of the Bible, the second chapter, and if you have a Bible, you'll notice this. All the words today are written in red, which means they are spoken directly by Jesus. So very unique, okay? The whole chapter is spoken directly from God himself, right? So I'm going to pray. We'll jump into this today, and uh, we'll just keep getting deeper and deeper as we go, all right? Glad all you guys are here today, all right? Lord Jesus, we love you. Father, keep your hand on me today, God, as I, uh, as I do my best um, to maybe take us a little bit deeper into the pool of revelation. God, I pray that you just help us learn from the words today. 
Like you say today, God, Lord, let us have ears to hear you. Lord, let us be receptive of what you say. Father, we pray that you bless every church in our community. Pray that you bless every nonprofit. Lord, bless our, our, our government officials and our first responders. And Lord, bless our school systems and MTSU, God, and all the things that are going on in this great city, Lord. Keep your hand on us, Lord. We love you. We're desperate for you. We need you more than we've ever needed you, Father. So be with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, chapter two of Revelation. I'm gonna read a little bit, and I'll do my best to break it down. Okay, here we go. Now, remember, all of this is straight from the mouth of God. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you've fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So like I said earlier, these seven letters, we just read the first one, are written to specific churches in specific areas roughly 2,000 years ago. Now, that doesn't take away from their power to speak to us because these seven churches kind of encompass or represent even modern-day Christianity. So here's what these letters are going to call us to do. They're going to warn us to evaluate our personal walks with Jesus. Every single one of us should read these and evaluate our personal life with Jesus. Not only that, we should look at the public witness of the church. So all of us right here, we should constantly be asking, what do people think of God's body, of, of the church? So last week, and you guys laughed at this because you're heartless, but I said that the angels in chapter one could be referring to pastors. And now we see, and you're gonna feel bad, right? That it probably is referring to pastors. So if you've ever thought of me as your angel, it's biblical, right? So anyways, <laughs> that was, no, never mind. Any, so these seven letters were written for these angels. Angels is probably metaphorical for the pastors of these churches, okay? In chapter one, these are little bitty things, but they're important. In chapter one, it said that Jesus was among the lampstands. That's the churches, okay? Now it says that Jesus is walking through them. And so that's different. What that means now is not only is Jesus among the churches, he's examining the churches. He's looking at the churches. He's evaluating them. And he's gonna give these seven letters to John to give to his churches. Now, each of these seven letters contains seven points. We're not necessarily gonna go over all seven points. We're gonna focus on about three or four, but here's what they are. The letters have an address. They talk about the attributes of God. They have an approval. This is what you're doing good. They have an accusation, this is what you're doing bad. They have advice, and then it has the assurance, if you do what's right, this is the good thing that's gonna happen. And then it has an appeal. If you do what's wrong, these are the consequences. So all the letters kind of have the same format, all right? Another thing that all the letters have is they all say, I know. <laughs> this will resonate with some of you. We have done a good job, especially in the United States, with creating this church facade, right? Build these huge, beautiful buildings with these big steeples and people drive by and they're like, whoa, everything must be really great there, except for this church. They're like, oh, that's a church. And um, <laughs> they drive by the building and, and they look at this and we've created this facade. And there's nothing wrong with a nice church building. There's nothing wrong with looking nice at church, but church has kind of become our place where we put on our mask, right? I'm good, you're good, everyone's good, right? We look nice, we're clean, big building, everything's fine. See, the problem with that is God sees through that garbage. God sees through the facade and he sees the heart. 
So we can put on the best mask and we can fool each other into thinking that everything's great. And God says, I know. (laughs) I know what's in your heart. I know the good about you and I know the bad about you. And so we're reminded that nothing is hidden from the eyes of God. That's a sobering fact, right? So the approval for this first church, the church of uh, the Ephesians, is actually pretty good. God says, you're involved in your community, you've persevered in your faith, and you've rejected false teachers. That is awesome. You're out in the community, you've remained a Christian, and you have rejected false teachers. Jesus also says, you hate the acts of the Nicolaitans, and and God says, I hate that too. Now, you have to do a little research to know what the Nicolaitans were. This takes a little bit of work. Now, if you go back into history, there was a man named Nicholas of Antioch, and this Nicholas of Antioch called himself a Christian, but he led essentially a cult, and he said, you can be a follower of Jesus and have sex however you want to have sex with as many people as you want to have sex with, and you can also worship idols and still be a Christian. Now, we know that that's not true. And if you look in the United States, look at how many cults similar to this have sprung up in the last 150 years in the United States. We've had tons of them, right? Some of them have come and gone. Others are bigger than a lot of mainstream denominations. And so we have lots of cults, and this is not a new thing. It's been going on for thousands of years. We also learn that works matter to God. In modern-day Christianity, we don't want to talk about quantifiable evidence that we're Christians. I believe in Jesus. Well, show me you believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, we should live in such a way to where there's evidence that we follow Jesus. And so we learn in the book of Revelation that this is important to God. As we go through the book of Revelation, you're going to see that true Christians have acts and works that, that, that give substantiation to their claim that they're a Christian. So not only do people say they're believers, they live like they're believers. That's what true Christians do, okay? So this church had done a lot of good things, but there's also some problems. Jesus looks at the church at Ephesus and he says, I have this against you. You have lost your first love. Now, a lot of people think that that's referring to Jesus himself, and it's not. What this was referring to is the people in Ephesus loved God but they weren't really loving people anymore. They did a lot of stuff just out of obligation. You know, they fed the poor because we got to feed the poor, right? Jesus told us to. You know, they would do nice things for people because they felt obligated. Now, here's the thing about Christians. Jesus himself said, you'll be known as a follower of Jesus by how you treat each other, by how you love each other. And the Ephesians had forgotten this. They had stopped loving each other. They had become skeptical. They had become cynical. So Jesus gives them some advice. He says, you guys need to remember back when you actually loved people, right? Has anyone else been through that cycle, if we're just honest? You catch yourself, you're like, I don't really like people anymore. And you need to go back and remember a time when you did, right? There's just a little corner of Corey's dark heart there. So God said, go back and remember when you still liked people. And go back and repent that you don't love them anymore. And then he said, go back and do what you did at first. Whatever you have to do to get back to that place to where you love people again. Here's the other thing we learned early on in chapter two. Motives are important to God. We can do the right thing for the wrong reasons, and according to Jesus, that's wrong. So we need to ask for forgiveness. Well, I did the right thing, but your heart was in the wrong place. If you're doing good things for the Lord only so you can get attention and make yourself feel better, Jesus says, that's not the right reasons to do that. So we need to periodically... Us, right? Us in this room. We need to periodically step back and say, why are we doing this? Why are we here right now in this room? Why are you here? Why am I here? Why do we serve the poor? Why do we feed the homeless? Why do we do the things? Why do we give 20% of our budget away? Why do we do these things? Why do we do the things that we do? And sometimes we need to ask ourselves, are our motives in the right place? Now, if they choose to listen to Jesus, this church in Ephesus, they will have the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It doesn't take a genius to put two and two together on what that is, right? It's heaven. The other thing, though, he says, is if you don't do this, I'll remove your lampstand, which means I'll remove your light. I'll remove this church from you. Now, here's what's tragic about this first church. Obviously, they didn't change because not only is there no longer a church in Ephesus, There is no city called Ephesus. It's just a bunch of ruins now. 
So they did not listen to God. All right? Next one, and this one's just right down the road. <laughs> it's a terrible joke, and all four services laughed at that. All right? <laughs> Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Now, this is the shortest letter. I mean, you just look at the two we've already done. This is the shortest letter. And Jesus commends this church. He says, you guys have been through affliction. You've been through poverty. The world has looked at you and said you are poor but Jesus says, you're not poor, you're rich. There's a whole lesson just in that one sentence. We're not to do what the world thinks is right. We're not trying to impress the world around us. We're trying to impress God and do what he tells us to do. So God says, the world thinks you don't have anything, but God says, you got everything because I say you have everything. So slandering from the synagogue of Satan, this doesn't mean there was literally like a satanic church in Smyrna. That's not what that means. What this means is the Jewish people in Smyrna were, you know, they would go to the synagogue, they would worship God, but they would also kill and imprison the Christians. And Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan. They thought they were doing God's work, but they were actually doing the devil's work and acting more like Satan. Now, if you noticed in this one, Jesus says nothing bad about this church. There is not one bad word about the church of Smyrna. Now, here's what else is interesting. If you guys have ever seen those prosperity churches, right? Just follow Jesus and everything is hunky-dory. Jesus has nothing bad to say about the Smyrna church. And then the next thing he says is, you're going to suffer. You're going to go through bad stuff. The Christians in Smyrna were about to suffer more persecution than they had already been through. But he says, don't be afraid of that. Jesus says the suffering is going to come in two different ways, in short spurts, 10 days, which I don't think that's a literal 10 days, but he just meant a short period of time. And then he also said it's going to extend so far to where some of you are going to be murdered, martyred for your faith. And so because of that, because some of them were, only, were, were even going to die for their faith, Jesus says, don't give up. Because the suffering that this church was going to go through, as good of a church as they were, the suffering they were going to go through was going to make them an even better church, an even better group of people. Not only that, <clears throat> the Smyrna church shows us that not everyone receives salvation just because they're called a Christian or just because they call themselves a Christian, but it is the faithful followers of Jesus. And so this point that they received the crown of life, it's because they endured. And even if they suffered the first death, right? I mean, here on earth, dying, he says you will escape the second death. Now, the second death is the one that we really need to be worried about. We don't need to be worried about the first death if we're Christians. The second death is eternal damnation. That's separation from God for eternity. And that's the one that we need to be super concerned about, okay? Now, it gets a little bit more real with the church at Pergamum. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name, and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold on to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, you guys know what that is. So repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give you some of the hidden manna, 
I will also give him a white stone and on the stone a new name that is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, this was the capital of this region. I wish I should have thrown a map up there. Turkey's a pretty big, massive land. On the western side where all these cities were, this was the capital of what was called Asia Minor. Now, listen, this is very important. It's almost like foreshadowing. God says to this church, he reminds them, I'm the God with the double-edged sword that comes out of my mouth. Now, we know from last week that that sword is not a literal sword. There's not this sword coming out of his mouth. The sword represents the word of God. It represents the truth. The reason why Jesus reminded this, this church about the truth that comes out of his mouth is the main problem in this church were lies, false doctrines, false teachings, heresy. So here's the thing about false teaching. This is biblical. In the church, I'm talking about us, guys, we can deal with any kind of struggle you have, any mistakes you've made, any, any kind of addictions you've struggled with. We can deal with all of that stuff. The one thing that the church will not deal with is divisiveness. Just like a shepherd is looking out for his sheep, when a wolf comes in, he's like, hey, wolf, can we just counsel a little bit and talk about it? No, no, no. He takes care of the wolf. He removes the wolf from the pack. That's what a good shepherd does, and that's what God does. He does not let wolves come in and kill his sheep. So false teaching creates enemies within the church, and God takes this offense extremely seriously, extremely seriously, and he deals with these lies with the sword that comes out of his mouth, which is the truth. So here's the good thing about Pergamum. Jesus mentions that they are in the presence of Satan, and he mentions this twice. Now, again, this doesn't, when he says that the throne of Satan was in Pergamum, he didn't literally mean that, like, you know, the devil himself had this, like, throne, and he's, you know, like, smoking a cigarette, looking at Pergamum. Like, I just assume the devil smokes, but um, he's, you know, because he's around fire all the time. So uh, it didn't literally mean, <laughs> it didn't literally mean that Satan sat on a throne and looked at Pergamum. What this was probably in reference to is the city of Pergamum had an altar to Zeus. And the altar of Zeus was on a hillside looking out over the city. Now the Bible says, Paul writes, that there are no other gods but the true God. And all other gods, the Greek gods, the Roman gods, the gods that we make up, are actually demonic. That's what the Bible says. So when Jesus says that this statue of Zeus is the throne of Satan, he meant that all other gods are satanic in nature. So here's the thing. These Christians that were in a city that, that had a satanic God looking out over it, there was this hotbed of satanic activity. The Christians in Pergamum never wavered on their faith, even to the point to where some of them, a guy named Antipas, had been murdered for his faith, and they still didn't waver on their faith. And God says, that's awesome. The problem was this, though. Even though they hadn't wavered in their faith, some false teaching had crept its way into the church. Teachings of Balaam and teachings of the Nicolaitans. And now what that means is this. Within the Christian church, there was this subtle inclusion of other religions. They were starting to get soft on the fact that Jesus was the only pathway to heaven. Sound familiar, right? There was also a lack of sexual boundaries and a violation of conviction and conscience. Now, let me break that down a little bit. And again, this may offend some of you in this room, but I'm just going to lean on the Bible here. The Bible is crystal clear about a couple of things. One of the things it's crystal clear about is sexual sin. The Bible is extremely, very clear all throughout the Bible, in the old and the new, on what constitutes biblical sexuality and how sex works. One man, one woman, exclusively for life. That is the Bible parameter. The other thing that the Bible is extremely clear about is universalism. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he meant that he was the way, the only way. Now, if you believe differently than that, that's your prerogative, but that is not a Christian belief. The Christian belief is that there is one pathway to heaven. Now, with this sexual thing, I know where a lot of you already went with that. Get them, Corey. Let's, let's, let's talk about how wrong the gays are and the transgenders, and let's talk about those communities. They're so sexually immoral, Corey. Get them. Here's the thing. We're so quick to take the heat off ourselves and point it towards the 1% or 2% of the population that may be more extreme. 
Statistics say that 95% of everyone in this room has lost their virginity before marriage. So here's the thing. We're so quick to point at people and say, you guys are so bad, when statistically 95% of us in this room have sinned sexually. So we need to be super careful before we start pointing fingers and talking about how bad other people are. We need to just shed the light on ourselves. So here's the other part. So sexual sin had been compromised. Universalism had been compromised in this church. The last thing that had been compromised was conviction or conscience. Now what that means is this. Every single one of you in this room, God will speak to you however he chooses to speak to you and he will tell you to do things that are not necessarily applied to everyone else. These are called personal convictions. Now these are not heaven or hell issues for everyone else, but if God tells you to do something and you are not obedient and you don't do it, that is a sin. That's wrong. Let me give you a good example. It is not a sin for you to have a bottle of beer with your pizza. Nowhere in the Bible. If you're anti-alcohol in here, you cannot prove to me biblically that it's a sin to drink alcohol. It's just not there. Especially when Paul tells Timothy, have a glass of wine every once in a while, all right? So there's nothing wrong with you having a glass of wine at dinner. Nothing wrong with you drinking a bottle of beer. This guy though, Corey, up here on the stage, God has convicted me and I do not drink alcohol for a lot of different reasons, but I don't do it. Now, I cannot take my personal conviction and force it on you. It's not for you, it's for me. And God will speak to you. Now, drinking beer is not a sin. If this guy drinks beer after God told him not to, that's a sin. And this church was not listening to their conscience and their convictions, and that was wrong, and God held that against them. So their advice was this, repent. Simply say you're sorry. If they would humble themselves, if they would admit that they were wrong, God says, I will give you the hidden manna. That's symbolic of the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. You know, Indiana Jones, right? So the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, everyone's like, oh yes, got it. In the Ark of the Covenant, there was a couple of different things, but one of them was manna from heaven. And the Ark of the Covenant was symbolic of God's presence. So God says, if you, if you endure, I'll give you the hidden manna, which means you can be in my presence. The second thing he says is we will give you a white stone. Now the white stone's a little bit more cryptic, but if we study a little bit, Jewish people would have religious events back in, in the days of Christ, and they would give people smooth white stones as an admission ticket into the event. You see the symbolism. If we endure, God gives us a ticket to where we can get in, and he's referring to heaven. Now the other side of that is, if this church refused to repent, Jesus said, I'm gonna come fight against you. <laughs> if Jesus says, if you don't change, I'm gonna come fight, you should probably change, right? <laughs> but Jesus said, I'm gonna come and I will fight against you if you don't change. Now listen, God is quick to forgive. I don't care what you've done in this room. One prayer and God will forgive you and give you a clean slate. But if we are arrogant and prideful, the Bible also says he starts to push away from us. So we need to be very careful. Last church. Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like fiery flames and whose feet are like fine bronze. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than your first. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she doesn't want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead then all of the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each according to their works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who don't hold on to the teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I'm not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations, he will rule them with an iron scepter, 
and he will shatter them like pottery, just as I have received this from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this is the longest letter to the smallest of the seven churches. Now, again, look at the foreshadowing here. God says, I am the God who has the fiery flames. My eyes are like fiery flames. If you weren't here last week, that shows that there's a little bit of anger in God's eyes in chapter one. He's got some anger in his eyes. We also see that the fiery flames represent the fact that he knows everything. He's omniscient. He sees all. Jesus also says, I'm like the one who has feet like fine bronze. If you weren't here last week, that means that God is all powerful. He can kick his feet up on the earth like a footstool is what Isaiah said. So we see this is a foreshadowing and we'll get to that here in a second. The good thing about Thyatira, he praises this church in a big way. He says, you guys have been loving, you've been faithful, you've served, you've endured. Not only that, he says your, your last works are better than your first works, which means they're growing, they're getting better, they're getting more spiritual, they have good motives. This is a great compliment. Jesus says, you guys are doing a lot of good stuff. But just as big as the compliment was, the accusation is just as big. This is probably the most severe criticism of the four that we've covered today. The success of this church had been overshadowed by their tolerance of the woman Jezebel. Now, if you've never heard the name Jezebel before, this woman had died a long time before John wrote this. She had died way back in the book of 1 Kings. She was an evil woman that manipulated people and she brought in a lot of sexual deviation into the church. She led a lot of false gods into the church and God dealt with her in a pretty brutal way if you go back and read that. But there was this spirit, there was this philosophy, if you will, of this woman Jezebel. So Jezebel and Thyatira was either a literal person or it might've just been an idea, this acceptance of this false teaching. But whoever Jezebel was, this is so important, guys. Jezebel and Thyatira, again, whatever that was, was convincing the church to compromise their beliefs so they would fit in with the world around them. You could almost replace Thyatira with the North American church and this works exactly the same. Thyatira was being accepting of open sexuality. And again, I'm not just talking about homosexuality and transgenderism, I'm not, just, I'm not harping on that. I'm talking about just complete sexual freedom, which I think if we're honest in here, we can admit the majority of us have fallen to. Not only were they accepting all kinds of sexual freedom, they were being extremely tolerant to universalism, that there are multiple pathways to heaven. These are the two defining issues that we are dealing with right now in the United States with our church. Not only that, they were dabbling in the occult. Now, some of you Bible scholars in the room, you would say, wait a second, the Bible is contradicting itself. Paul in his epistle said, it's not a big deal to eat meat that is sacrificed to idols. And then right here, Jesus says, they were eating meat sacrificed to idols, and this was wrong. Let me tell you what the difference is between the two. When Paul was talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols, he was saying to the different churches, hey, look, if you go to Kroger, he didn't say Kroger, but you know, we're putting it in modern day perspectives. If you go to Kroger and you're starving and the only kind of bologna they have is Aphrodite bologna, right? You can only get Aphrodite bologna. <laughs> Paul said, we know that there's no such thing as Aphrodite, right? We know that that's not a real God. So Paul says, just buy the bologna and eat it. Like if you drive a mercury car, right? You're not gonna go to hell. We know that there's no mercury that really exists besides the planet, right? But you can still drive your car. You can still eat the Aphrodite bologna. Don't worry about it. Now, when Jesus said that they're eating meat sacrificed to idols, he meant that Christians were going to people's houses and they would lift up the bologna and say, Aphrodite, we give this bologna to you. And then they would eat it together. They're participating in the occult. That's what he was talking about. So in Thyatira, the problem is that the Christians were dabbling in things that were the occult. Now, I know a lot of you in this room are like, whoo, never do that one, right? Go into your Netflix queue at your house and look at the movies you guys watch sometimes. Look at some of the music you guys listen to and you'll be shocked at how much of it dabbles in the occult. 
Now, and I'm not trying to be like a square here. I don't know if anyone on planet Earth says that anymore, but I'm not trying to be a square. But here's the thing. Like, there are certain kinds of music that I love. I'm a huge David Bowie fan. Love David Bowie. There's a certain era of David Bowie's career where he got really into the occult, like the Golden Dawn and all this really wacky stuff. And I do not listen to that era of David Bowie. I've removed that era of David Bowie from my music collection, and I listen to the other stuff. And so we as Christians have to have enough common sense and quite honestly enough respect for Jesus Christ to not dabble in stuff that is anti-Jesus Christ. And so if, if that means getting rid of some CDs, if you guys still listen to those, throw them out, get rid of them, delete some stuff off the iTunes. Just don't watch that movie, right? Guys, Halloween's getting close. And here comes old man Corey. Man, I love old cheesy horror films. Love them. They're great, right? Fun. If anything is supernatural though, anything about demonic possession or any of that stuff, I just don't go there. Why? Because a lot of that crap is real. So I just don't bring that junk into my home. I don't want that crap in my home. And so there are certain lines that we need to draw, right? And that was Jesus's criticism. Some of you guys like Corey needs to clean up his language, but um, there are certain lines that Jesus said we need to draw. So the advice and the appeal are stern. Jesus said, I gave Jezebel the opportunity to repent, and she didn't want to. And because she didn't want to repent, I'm going to throw her and her children. Oh, no, God's killing children. That's, he didn't mean literal children. He meant her followers, that I'm going to take care of them. And he was probably referring to heaven and hell, not literal zapping them with lightning bolts. So the tolerance of evil, us, must be repented for. And we must also let go of unbiblical teaching. I love what Jesus says here. He says they've been following the so-called secrets of Satan. Now, there was a book that came out a couple years ago called The Secret. And there was a bunch of Christians that read this garbage book, right? If I just think positively enough about a Ferrari, I'll walk out and I'll get a Ferrari, right? What a bunch of garbage. And so many Christians abandoned this book, the book of truth and knowledge and practicality, for garbage like the secret. And they did it in droves. And Jesus takes a jab at books like that and he says, these so-called secrets of Satan, just go back to the truth and study what is the truth and get from that what you need. So Thyatira was encouraged. Jesus said, go back to the beginning. Go back to the truth and hold on to that. And he said, if you guys will go back to the truth, I'll give you authority over all the nations. I'll give you the morning star. You will inherit everything that God has, but you must endure until Jesus comes back. Now listen, I'm gonna explain this authority over all nations later in Revelation. We'll get to that later. And so the details right now are a little fuzzy, but they'll clear up. But the point is this, we have to hold on until we either die or Jesus comes back for us, one or the other. Now here's where we need to be honest. Here's the honesty part of the lesson today. And you're going to have to ask yourself some questions, and you're going to have to be honest with yourself. The first one is this. After reading about these four congregations that call themselves Christians, let's talk about our church, us, right now in this room. If you and I carry the title Christian, 68 to 70% of the United States claims to be Christian. I don't buy that because I don't think our culture reflects that. But if we claim to be a Christian, are you proactively trying to live out the teachings of Jesus? If you want to know if you're really a Christian, are you actively and proactively working to live out his teachings? Basically, if I say I follow Jesus, does my life support that claim? There's an old phrase. Back in the days of Jesus Christ, when a young man would want to follow a rabbi, a teacher, right? A spiritual teacher. They said that you would walk behind your rabbi. Wherever your rabbi went, you would walk behind your rabbi. And they knew when a good student was following a good teacher because his clothes would be covered in dust and dirt. The reason they would be covered in dust and dirt is they walked behind their master so closely that the dirt that would be kicked up from his sandals would cover the front of their body. You know you're a Christian if there are remnants of your master all over you. That's how you know if you're a Christian. If the remnants 
of your rabbi, if the remnants of Jesus are on you, if we start to look like him a little bit. You know that word Christian was derived from a derogatory statement in a city called Antioch. Again, not the one down the street, another Antioch, where they called people Christians, which literally meant little Christs, little Jesuses. And someone got offended one time when I said we should be little Jesuses. I'm not trying to, we're not trying to be God, but we're trying to be as close to Jesus as possible. So we need to walk as closely to him as possible. So on that note, have we let unbiblical theology creep into the church? Have we started to believe things that that book does not support? Have we started to do it as individuals? Well, I believe if you're just a good person, you go to heaven. Man, the Bible says that our good works are like filthy rags compared to Jesus. So I, I know that's a warm, fuzzy thing to say. Well, they're just good. Well, we have to define good. And the only way to define good is right here. Good is being connected to Jesus Christ. That's good. So have we let un, unbiblical teaching creep its way into Christianity? Have we betrayed our conscience? Guys, I'm not, I'm not busting on you. The 95% that have lost their virginity, I was one of them. I was 14 years old when I lost my virginity. Every single one of us that lost our virginity before we were married, I bet you money all of us felt bad about it. But what happens is, it's, I used to be a cigarette smoker, so don't feel bad about this. It's like the first time you smoke a cigarette. You're like, oh God, this is awful. And then you push through it, and before you know it, you're addicted. You don't notice it anymore. It's the same thing with all things that we do wrong, right? All things that are destructive against us. We've betrayed ourselves. We've contradicted ourselves. We've fallen to the temptations of the world. God has spoken to some of you so many times, but you, so many times you've covered your ears or you've been distracted to where now if God spoke to you, you wouldn't even know if it was his voice or not. I've been there too, guys. Have we betrayed our conscience? Have we betrayed our convictions? We must also understand that if we are Christians, there will be some kind of negative attention you will get for being a Christian. Now, I don't know if we're going to be martyred in our lifetime like they are in other parts of the world. I don't know if that's going to happen in the United States and our generation. I don't, I don't know if it will. It might, but I don't know if it will. But every single one of you will receive some kind of negative pressure about your faith. You may be at the finest, swankiest fundraiser in the world, and everyone's, you know, sipping on their $150 glass of wine. <laughs> you know, they smell it more than they drink it. You know, that's my best impression of, you know, rich white people, but doing this thing. <laughs> And they may start talking about all these, <laughs> they might all start talking about these bigoted right-wing conservative Christians, these awful bigoted people. In the middle of an atmosphere like that, are you going to be the one to step up and say, hey, I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I don't feel like I'm a bigoted right-wing nut. What do you, can you explain that to me? Are, gonna, are we going to be the ones? No matter what your sphere is, no matter what world that you, you work in and live in and hang out in, you will receive some negative pressure. When that pressure comes, will you buckle to that? Or will you stand up for your faith, regardless of what it costs you? When we make mistakes, guys, <laughs> notice I didn't put if, because you will. When you make mistakes, here's the thing, guys, and all of us have made them. When we make mistakes, will we be humble? I'm sorry, I was wrong. Will we repent, which means we take steps to change our direction? You're all going to make mistakes on some level or another. The question isn't if you're going to do it. The question is when you do it, how will you respond to the mistake? Will you be humble? Will you ask God to forgive you? And will you take the steps to change it? If you are cheating on your spouse, and you say, oh, God, I'm sorry, forgive me. But if you don't take any steps to do anything about it, you have not truly repented. If you're addicted to porn, and you say, God, I'm so sorry, I look at porn every single night, but you never shut the laptop or get some software or get an accountability partner, you truly haven't repented for that sin. So we be humble, we ask for forgiveness, but we do something to change it. We change it. Here's the other thing, guys. If we're all going to make mistakes, how in the world are we going get to in, get into heaven? We're going to get into heaven because we lean on our advocate. God wrote the Ten Commandments, gave them to Moses, knowing that humanity would never be able to live up to them. It's not because God is some sadistic weirdo, right? I'm going to give him this unachievable goal. 
God also knew that he was gonna send his only son to stand in our place when we fell. So though I cannot live up to these standards, God sent his son to where I stand before the throne and I know that I'm unworthy, Jesus is gonna stand in front of me and say, I can vouch for Corey Trimble. And I'm gonna to get to go in. That's for all of us. Now listen to me. I don't care what you've done and, and, and the mistakes you've made, the arrogance you've fallen into, what's been done to you. You need to get it in your thick skull and deep into your heart that God not only loves you, but he is fighting for you. And in all of these letters, God could have just zapped them all out of existence, but he says, listen, change. And if you change, here's, here's the linchpin to this whole lesson. If you change, let me explain this morning star thing. God says, if you change, you receive the morning star. That's what he told the church of Thyatira. Let me tell you what that is. In the Old Testament, it calls Jesus Christ the bright and morning star. Now listen, listen, listen to what this means. If you and I will be humble, if we will ask for God's forgiveness, if we will let him be our advocate, if we will lean on him, if we will trust him, if we will build a relationship with him, one day at the end of our life, not only will we inherit the kingdom of God, and when we get into the latter parts of Revelation, guys, it is absolutely gorgeous. Streets of gold, pearly gates, these isotropic stones, we'll get into that nerdiness later, these isotropic stones that, that the foundations are made out of, a new earth, it says the new heavens, there's a new skyline that we look at, there's all this beautiful stuff. Not only do we inherit that, God says we inherit the morning star. Do you know what that is? When we die, it's not just that we inherit God's kingdom, we inherit God. Let that sink in for a second. Hey, listen, I'm not trying to pull any of your heartstrings today. I don't have a dad in my life. I don't know if anyone can relate to that. But one day when I die, I'm going to wake up in paradise and my heavenly father, my heavenly father is going to be waiting there for me. And here's what this guy wants to do. Man, the streets of gold are going to be awesome. The pearly gates, are, all that stuff's going to be neat. I just want to see, and I believe God's going to do this for me because he's omnipresent. He can be everywhere at once. I just want to look at my father and say, can you walk with me? Can you show me what it looked like when you created everything? Like, God, what was up with snakes and mosquitoes? Why? Right? You know, and like, just, <laughs> just walk with him. <laughs> but for those of you in this room who've been hurt, who've made a ton of mistakes, who've been lonely, who've been abandoned, if we will hold on, one day you will get to look into the eyes of your creator. and you'll just get to walk around with him, you will feel the arm of God around your shoulder. It's not just that we inherit the kingdom, we inherit God himself. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Okay, so for all of you in this room, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, if you are in this room and maybe you've called yourself a Christian, but if you're being honest with yourself, you don't have any evidence to back that up. If that's been you, I'm glad you're here today. If you've let unbiblical theology creep into you, maybe you've started to believe things that are not biblical. Maybe you're in here and you know that things you've been doing are wrong, but you've betrayed your own conscience. You've betrayed your own conviction. If you're in here and maybe you've buckled under the pressure, maybe it was friends or maybe it was family or maybe it was people at your work, maybe you buckled to the pressure and you've, you've denied God. Maybe you're in here and you just made all kinds of mistakes. Here's what I want to tell you. We can start with a clean slate today. Doesn't mean that when you leave here, everything's just going to be rosy. There's still work to be done. But spiritually, your heart, your soul right now today can be crystal clear. We have to be humble. We have to ask Jesus to forgive us. And we need to take the steps 
to work on not falling into that same pit. But if we do fall into that pit, guys, we have an advocate. We have a savior. We have a helper. And you need to remember that. Not only does he love you, he's fighting for you. He wants you to win. And he has a place there prepared for you. Jesus Christ said this. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I love this. Jesus Christ said that in my Father's house, there's many mansions. And if that weren't true, I wouldn't have told you. But even greater than the mansions, we inherit Jesus Christ himself. All around you today, there's communion. Everyone who has asked God to forgive them of their sins, all of them are welcome to take communion. Today, when you're taking communion, I, I, I hope you remember the cross. I hope you remember that Jesus died for your sins. I also hope that you remember that one day, Christ will come back and you will get to see your Savior face to face. If you're in this room and you need prayer for anything, there's men and women at the front, please let them pray for you, for any need you may have. Last thing, if you're in here and you're either not a Christian or maybe you're interested in this, but you don't know where to go next or what to say or what to do, up here to my right, your left is Greg. He's wearing glasses. He's got a blue shirt on. If you have any questions, come up here and talk to Greg. He'd be more than happy to talk with you. I want to pray with you, though, before you leave. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. Father, we thank you. God, we just want to tell you, Lord, that we're, we're so grateful, Lord. God, you knew that we were going to make mistakes. You knew that we were going to mess up. But Father, you loved us so much that you died, as Paul said, even when we were still sinners. Lord, let us be humble. Lord, let us just go to you and, and throw up our hands and say, God, we need help because you'll help us, Lord. Your word says so. Lord, we love you. I pray that you bless all my friends, all my brothers and sisters in this crowd, anyone who maybe doesn't believe but they're interested, God. Keep your hand on us, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. It's in your son's name that we pray, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you, guys.